Have you ever heard of crash bars? You probably use them all the time. They're the horizontally mounted, spring-loaded mechanisms on the insides of doors in just about every public building in the world. Easier and faster to use than a standard doorknob, they allow people to exit buildings quickly in the case of an emergency. Even for everyday use, crash bars have lots of benefits. They're more accessible to those with disabilities. They allow someone with their hands full to open the door with just a bump of the hips. If you stop to think about it, they're really one of the great advancements in industrial design. But like most safety innovations, the crash bar wasn't born from foresight. Rather, the inspiration came at a terrible cost. The price that humanity would pay for this knowledge was the lives of 183 children. You're listening to Fatal Errors, and this is the story of the Victoria Hall disaster. Welcome to Fatal Errors, the podcast about preventable disasters. Each episode, we take a look at a man-made tragedy. What happened, what could have been done differently, and what changed afterward? Today's episode includes graphic descriptions of a tragedy involving children. It won't be suitable for all audiences. You know, in a former life, I wrote a series of graphic novels for kids based on a video game called Pop Tropica. To promote the books, I made appearances at elementary schools. One time, I brought along a box full of Pop Tropica toys to give out. These were not especially desirable items. They were little stuffed dolls that had retailed for about seven or eight bucks. The whole reason I had them in the first place was that they had failed to sell, and our office was filled to the brim with overstock. My boss practically begged me to take some off his hands. Well, I did my standard song and dance routine for an audience of about a hundred kids, and at the end I started tossing out these cheap toys to the crowd. You would have thought I was giving away sacks of money. The place erupted, and the kids, first through third graders, were climbing over one another to grab the toys. A half an hour earlier, most of these kids had never even heard of Pop Tropica, and now they were in a frenzy. Teachers were unable to restore order. It was just complete pandemonium. Now, fortunately, nothing bad happened that day. Unless you want to count the little girl who came up to me afterward, glaring at me, and said in a low, menacing voice, I really wanted a toy. But it was eye-opening to see how quickly a group of children could succumb to mob rule when there was something they wanted, and how powerless the adults were in the face of that untrammeled desire. All of this is to say that I can understand how, under the wrong conditions, youthful enthusiasm could have deadly consequences. Let's go back now to June 1883 in Sunderland, England, and to a day when a children's variety show became the scene of an historic catastrophe. Sunderland is a city on England's northeast coast at the mouth of the River Weir. In the 19th century, the city boasted vibrant shipbuilding and coal industries and was a key North Sea port for international trade. Its population exploded during the 1800s, from less than 30,000 residents at the start of the century to nearly 200,000 by the 1880s. With such rapid growth came a desire for the amenities of a first-class city. In 1872, a local philanthropist named Edward Backhouse funded the construction of a new hall that would be used primarily for town meetings. 
Victoria Hall was located between Toward Road and Laura Street, facing Mowbray Park. It contained three tiers of seating. The floor, the dress circle, which is the lowest level of the balcony, and then the upper gallery. Total capacity was just over 2,000. A traveling performance troupe based out of Tynemouth, located just a few miles up the coast, made its way to Sunderland for a performance at the Victoria Hall, which was to take place on Saturday, June 16th, 1883. The performers, Alexander and Annie Fay, advertised a show with Conjuring, Talking Waxworks, Living Marionettes, and The Great Ghost Illusion, calling it the greatest treat for children ever given. Alexander Fay spent the Friday before the performance visiting local schools, giving bundles of tickets to the teachers to distribute to their students. Besides details of the performance, the tickets also enticed kids by offering prizes, promising that, quote, every child entering the room will stand a chance of receiving a handsome present, books, toys, and etc. Each ticket was numbered so as to grant its holder a random chance of winning a prize. The phase charged three pennies for adults, two pennies for reserved seating on the floor, and just one penny for general admission in the upper gallery. In Sunderland at that time, three pence was a little rich for most families, so most of the children headed to the theater unaccompanied to save money. A capacity crowd arrived for the show that afternoon, of whom about 1,100 paid a single penny for gallery seats, with only a couple of adults seated among them. Admission was carefully controlled by use of a removable gate at the top of the stairs, which allowed ticket takers to collect money and admit the children. Once the performance had begun, this gate was removed. The phase were well practiced and the show went off without a hitch. They performed magic tricks, puppetry, and ventriloquism. There were a few of the incidents you'd expect from a crowd of kids. Like at one point, a couple of boys were spitting off the balcony and had to be removed to the back row. But nothing out of the ordinary occurred. At last, Faye announced the show's conclusion. He began to give out prizes to kids on the floor. A 22-year-old assistant named Charles Hesseltine was to distribute them to the children in the gallery. But the children up high, seeing the toys and books being handed out down below, must not have realized that Hesseltine was coming up to them. They began to head down, toward ground level. As eager kids left their seats, more and more followed, fearful of missing out. Over 1,000 kids in the gallery, all rushing toward a single, narrow stairwell. The descent from the gallery took theater patrons down three flights of steps. The passageway was about seven feet wide. And after each segment of the stairs was a small landing and a 180 degree turn. Due to the way the stairwell was constructed, it wasn't possible to see beyond the next landing from any point on the stairs. Someone entering the stairway from the gallery would have no idea what was happening at the dress circle, let alone the ground floor. At the bottom of the final flight of 16 stairs was just a single heavy door, set not opposite the bottom step, but in the wall to the left. Ordinarily, this door could swing in either direction but it could be affixed to the far wall to keep it all the way open. Or a bolt could be inserted into a hole in the ground, propping the door open about 20 inches inward, just enough for a single person to pass through safely. This was probably done in ordinary circumstances as a checkpoint for patrons on their way to the gallery. And maybe that's why the door was propped open on this day. 
but these weren't ordinary circumstances. Picture it. Hundreds of kids clambering down the stairs, four or five abreast, unable to see more than a few feet in front of them. Rounding one final blind turn, they're faced with a dead end. Three windowless walls, and just a 20-inch opening to one side. The first few children to reach the bottom landing were able to make it through the doorway, but with so many trying to get through, the passageway was soon jammed. The small space filled up with bodies. To turn around, to resist the tide of human flesh flooding down the stairs, was impossible. Those at the top of the stairs had no idea what was occurring at the bottom, and they kept pressing forward. With nowhere to go, and no way to communicate with the masses forming behind them, the kids at the bottom of the stairs began to be crushed. It's worth pausing for a moment to explain the mechanics of a crowd crush. At the most basic level, a crowd crush occurs when the density of people is so great that it becomes impossible for an individual to move under their own power. The crowd in total begins to behave more like a fluid, with unique and irresistible waves rippling through it. If a space should open up, by someone falling to the ground for instance, the vacuum is immediately filled with more people by sheer force of the crowd. As John Seabrook explained in a New Yorker article, quote, A crowd crush often occurs almost imperceptibly. One doesn't realize what's happening until it's too late to escape. At a certain point, you feel pressure on all sides of your body and realize that you can't raise your arms. You are pulled off your feet and welded into a block of people. The crowd force squeezes the air out of your lungs and you struggle to take another breath. End quote. The main cause of death in a crowd crush is what's known as compressional asphyxia. The pressure from all sides literally prevents the lungs from expanding in order to draw breath. And while it's common for victims in such a situation to fall down and be piled upon, it's just as common for those remaining upright to be asphyxiated by the lateral pressure. Survivors of near-fatal asphyxiation recount a sensation not of pain or of panic, but a profound sleepiness. At Victoria Hall, within seconds of the crush's beginning, hundreds of little bodies had piled up at the base of the stairs, stacked some seven or eight deep. Those in the back continued to push, exerting ever more pressure on those unlucky enough to be at the front. To be in that group was to be both a victim of and a contributor to the disaster. A survivor, William Codling, recalled years later the feeling of being caught in the crush. Quote, I raced up the gallery as fast as I could, scrambled with the crowd through the doorway, and jolted my way down two flights of stairs. Here the crowd was so compressed that there was no more racing, but we moved forward together, shoulder to shoulder. Soon we were most uncomfortably packed, but still going down. Suddenly I felt that I was treading upon someone lying on the stairs, and I cried in horror to those behind, Keep back! Keep back! There's someone down! It was no use. I passed slowly over and onwards with the mass, and before long I passed over others without emotion. At last we came to a dead stop, but still those behind came crowding on, and though we cried to them to get back, some looked straight in front, bewildered, while others said they couldn't." End quote. On the floor, Heseltine realized that the kids had stopped coming through the door to get their prizes. 
he looked through the gap to see the pile up behind. Immediately, he tried to pull the door open, but it held fast. Working frantically, Heseltine pulled out victims one by one through the crevice, but simply couldn't keep up with the tide. The building's caretaker, Frederick Graham, noticed Heseltine's struggle and came over to assist. He saw bodies piled up to a great height and reached through the opening to try to undo the bolt. With so much pressure working against him, he couldn't make it budge. Graham then ran upstairs to redirect the children who still, obliviously, were streaming toward the deadly staircase to get their prizes. He was able to divert more than half of the crowd through the dress circle door, saving hundreds of lives in the process. But for 183 of them, it was already too late. The disaster had happened in the blink of an eye. News spread immediately. Within a few minutes, so many were rushing to the scene of the accident that it became difficult for rescuers to approach the hall. Among the first to arrive was a Dr. Lambert who lived just across Laura Street. He was summoned with the understanding that a single boy needed aid. He indeed found a deceased child, described as exhibiting, quote, intense congestion and puffiness of the face, looking purple or blackish, turgid vessels in the neck, bloody froth from the nose, as also bloody discharge from the ears, end quote. Lambert realized that something far worse than a single injury was occurring, and he ran to the stairway where he encountered what he called a horrible, dark pit of destruction. With the other adults present, Lambert worked as quickly as possible to pull the children out of the pile, reasoning that medical attention for those who had already been rescued was less urgent than relieving the crush. Despite the heroic efforts of all the men present, it took nearly 35 minutes before the last body was finally removed from the landing at the bottom of the stairs. According to the account of Dr. Lambert, surprisingly few of the surviving victims required intensive medical treatment. He recalled extricating one young boy with barely a pulse, who quickly recovered fully and went home under his own power. There were some broken bones and lots of bruising, but for many victims, the margin between life and death was simply how long they'd been in the crush. The terrible task of identifying the dead fell to parents from all over Sunderland. Bodies were at first laid out in the theater's dress circle, and then many were removed to the nearby Palatine Hotel. Family members made their way to the scene of the disaster as news spread, without much order or reason. Once there, spotting their kin was no easy task. Those who had suffocated were discolored and bloated and hard to recognize. There were several cases of mistaken identity. In some cases, parents would claim a body only to discover later that it belonged to someone else. The agony of the family's loss was compounded by the confusion of the scene. It took hours to tally the true cost. Nor was the damage limited to the children alone. In a darkly comic scene, one father who found his deceased child in the dress circle was overcome by his emotions. He fainted and toppled over the balcony, crashing onto Dr. Walker Beatty on the floor. Fortunately, both avoided serious injury. Story after story tells of shell-shocked parents and survivors. Perhaps no image captures the emotional devastation of the disaster like that of the young girl who was spotted walking along Tatham Street a few blocks away carrying the body of her lifeless infant sister in her arms. Not knowing what else to do, a citizen who found the girl hailed a cab to send her and her grim cargo home. 
of the many questions that arose in the wake of the disaster. None was more pressing than the identity of the person who had bolted the door partway open. After all, if the door had been left to swing freely, or opened all the way, the fatal crush never would have occurred. Authorities swiftly set up an inquest and compelled the adults who had been at Victoria Hall that day to testify. Prior to showtime, the door was left to swing freely. Faye and Graham initially set up on the landing to admit theatergoers on their way up to the gallery, but they found it logistically challenging and so moved to the top of the stairs. All of the 1,000 plus kids who would sit in the gallery that day passed through this way without incident. The show began at 3 o'clock. The hallkeeper Graham testified that the last time he had passed through the door about midway through the performance, at 4 o'clock, it had been secured in the wide open position. Graham further explained that he did not return to that area again during the show. That leaves Hesseltine, the assistant to the phase who was tasked with giving out prizes to the children in the gallery. Some of the child survivors identified him as the person who had bolted the door in its partially opened position. Of these, more than one specifically described Hesseltine as slamming the bolt down with his foot. Under deposition, Hesseltine flatly denied doing so. But his testimony is frankly a mess, and to these ears, not credible. He describes being on both sides of the fatal door at various points, and of moving freely through the crush. It is not a cohesive narrative. And yet, in the absence of hard evidence, this is not enough to prove that Hesseltine was at fault. And what of the possibility that the bolt slipped accidentally? Graham said that he had never seen it happen in the four or five years since the door had been installed. Faye, however, claimed that in examining the door afterward, the bolt slipped into the hole on the floor on its own 11 times out of 12. While Faye could very well have been attempting to deflect blame, it's also possible that the damage to the mechanism during the crush could have resulted in this behavior afterward. There was no way to confirm how it operated beforehand. Whatever the explanation, we will never know for sure. The inquest concluded that, quote, the children met their death by suffocation, from the partial closing of a door on the landing, fixed in its position by a bolt in the floor, but by whom there is not sufficient evidence to show." End quote. As is so often the case with disasters of this type, it's easy to point out countless contributing factors, but impossible to blame any one person or one poor decision. Each small error is a link in a chain, and at the end of that chain are the lives of the innocent. After the disaster, the community of Sunderland rallied to support its victims. Nearly everyone knew someone who was directly affected. Grief visited several families many times over, as numerous siblings perished in the crush. Unluckiest of all was the Mills family, who lost four children between the ages of six and twelve. There was also a Sunday school class of thirty children who had gone to the show together, and all died. Money came not just from Sunderland, but from all over England, even from Queen Victoria herself. Ultimately, some 5,000 pounds were collected, which today is equal to nearly 600,000 pounds, about $780,000 US. The money was used primarily for funeral costs and relief for the grieving families. Shortly after the tragedy, some of the funds were used to erect a monument, Carved in marble, it depicted a grieving mother cradling her deceased child. Despite the accident, Victoria Hall remained in operation, 
The fatal door was removed, but the building would host thousands more performances and stand for another 58 years until it was destroyed by a Nazi bomb in 1941. Over the years, the memorial statue was moved to a nearby cemetery and defaced. In 2002, the community raised 63,000 pounds to restore the memorial and return it to its original location in Mowbray Park, adjacent to the former site of Victoria Hall. It has been there ever since, protected by a glass canopy, which unfortunately has not been immune to further vandalism. Beginning in 2010, the Sunderland Old Township Heritage Society has hosted an annual memorial ceremony on the anniversary of the disaster. Local students, clergy, and politicians gather in Mowbray Park to commemorate the dead with song, art projects, and prayer. Society member Raymond Davison told the Sunderland Echo newspaper, quote, People are still so moved by what happened that day all these years later, and it's only right that the victims be remembered. It's amazing to see all these people come along, including the mayor, to honor them. End quote. Perhaps the greatest tribute to the loss of those 183 young lives has been largely invisible. In the wake of the Victoria Hall disaster, national legislation was passed that mandated outward opening doors in all places of public entertainment. That alone may have prevented many more tragedies. But even more impactful was an invention by one Robert Alexander Briggs, who was said to have been motivated by news of the terrible events of June 16, 1883. On November 2, 1891, Briggs applied for a patent named Improvement in Bolts and Fastenings for Doors of Theaters and Other Public Buildings. From the application, quote, The bolts on the door are connected by means of levers or cranks, with a pushpiece or pushrod, affixed to the style of the door so that in the event of pressure on the inside being applied to the pushpiece or pushrod, the bolts are automatically withdrawn from the doorhead and sill, and the doors set free. It's a highly technical description, but it describes the general workings of the crash bar that is still in use today. Push door, leave building. And it works. The first building to install Briggs' invention was the New Empire Theatre in Edinburgh, Scotland, where in 1911, a fire broke out during a performance. All 3,000 audience members escaped the building safely in under three minutes. It is impossible to say how many lives have been saved in the 127 years since the first of Briggs' crash bars was installed. Plenty more buildings that lacked this essential safety feature have experienced disasters of their own. But with the widespread adoption of minimum building safety codes, such events have become more rare, to the point where we take our safety in public buildings for granted. Of course, it's gauche to call anything a silver lining when speaking of something as devastating as the Victoria Hall disaster. The loss that Sunderland endured and the pain that persists can never be healed. Perhaps the only comfort may be found in the words of Matthew 19.14, which Queen Victoria sent to the bereaved on a memorial display. Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Fatal Errors is researched, written, and narrated by me, Mitch Kirpata, and features original music by Dylan Lane. I consulted several sources in researching this episode, but I'm particularly indebted to the British Library and the Sunderland Echo newspaper. Until next time, stay safe. (laughs) 